Good evening. We're going to jump right into the word. We're going to talk tonight about the transformation of the soul. Uh, let's look in Matthew, the sixth chapter, verses 22 through 23, and also verses 31 to 33. It says, the lamp of the body is the eye. So we're talking about the uh, capacity for perception, for revelation, for rationale, for um, deciphering and discerning. That's what the Bible means when it references the eye. It says, the lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body shall be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Jumping down to verse 31, it says, therefore, do not worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? Now, there is a level of metaphoric revelation there that when the Bible makes reference to what sh we shall eat, it's not just talking about natural food, but it is also talking about the food of meditation and the food of revelation and the book of Jeremiah chapter 15 and 16, you see the prophet there uh, in an encounter where the Lord speaks to him and tells him uh, to eat the word. Now he says that your words were found and I ate them. It's the same thing with the prophet Ezekiel. In Ezekiel, the third chapter, it says, uh, the, the word of the Lord came to him and said to him, son of man, eat what you find, eat the scroll and then go speak to the house of Israel. So what they were ingesting, what they were eating was literally the food of revelation. The scripture here in Matthew is saying, don't worry about what you will eat. Don't worry about the bread of revelation. It also says what we shall drink. Now, when the Bible makes reference to drinking, it is also metaphorically talking about the intention and the pursuit of your life. It's the thing that you go after. It's the appetite that you go after. 1 Corinthians 10, 3 through, uh, 3 through 11 talks about how um, the nation of Israel were all baptized into Moses, how they had ate all the same spiritual food, how they had all drank the same spiritual drink, yet God was not pleased with them because of their idolatry or their idolatrous pursuits. It was the drinking of intoxication that caused God to cause or to allow a whole generation to pass away in the wilderness. Scripture talks about not being concerned about what it is that we should wear. So when we see that metaphorically, it is talking about the cloak. There's a reference in 1 Peter 2.15 and uh, uh, 16 that talks about how they were using their liberty as a cloak for vice. So when the Bible talks about what we wear, it talks about a garment of salvation. It talks about a robe of righteousness. In Zechariah 3, we see the outfitting of the priests with supernatural attire. What we wear or what covers us always speaks to what it is that men see when they look upon us and how they identify us and how um, they reference us. So the scripture says here, do not worry about what we shall eat or what we shall drink or what we shall wear. For after all of these things, the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly father knows that you need all of these things, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added to you. Seek first, first, the kingdom of God. That's the word proton for first, uh, FYI. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all of these other things will be added to you. We've been pumping out the word of God, but we have to also take a look at whether or not the people that are hearers of the word have the capacity 
to receive the word that is being uh, dispensed and released into their lives. Because without the capacity to really handle the word of God, then everything that you hear, your years in church, your months in church, your weekly services really become of none effect because you don't have the ability to translate that word into something that is tangible, that is real inside of your life. In order for what we are preaching and ministering to be efficacious in the lives of all the recipients, there has to first be an internal work done in the soul, right? So we're talking about the transformation of the soul. Without a conscious effort, that means intention for renewal, transformation, and deliverance, you will often repeat the same beliefs, the same motives, and the same actions that emanate from your soul. So without like a divine intervention, without a moment of confrontation, without forcefully going after the deliverance of your soul, you are literally only going to keep regurgitating the same things over and over and over again. The human soul affects every part of your existence on the earth. So without the proper management of your soul, you will only produce undesirable outcomes in your life. And I'm sure that we can all attest to the fact that there have been seasons in our lives where we've heard the word, where we prayed, where we fasted, when we've done ABC and we've done XYZ, yet the results are not the intended results. Uh, we still aren't overcoming the same struggles or we still aren't overcoming the same mishaps. We're still producing the same thing. And in and, and most sincere Christians and people that really, really want to do right, they go about the task of putting on airs or putting on the facade of things being fine, not necessarily ever coming to grips with the reality that there are still internal struggles and internal problems, right? And so, uh, we got to talk about the soul. We have to deal with the soul. We have to deal with the transformation of the soul, the healing of the soul, and the deliverance of the soul. If what is programmed in your soul is contaminated, you are only going to reproduce contamination. If what's in your soul is twisted or perverse, you are only going to produce distorted realities, all right? If there is deep-rooted error, in your soul, no matter what you do on the outside, no matter what you do before people, no matter what you do uh, to impress or whatever uh, the case is, you are always going to wrestle with things that are true if there's deep-rooted error inside. And so our ability to really acquiesce to the principles of God, to the calling of God, to the purposes of God in our lives has to at some point, take in this conversation about the transformation of the soul. The Bible says to us that we are not to be conformed to this world, according to Romans 12, but we are to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. So that more than indicates to us that without that process of the renewing of the mind, that there is a conformity to the world that God doesn't accept, all right? And so in order to prove his good, perfect, and acceptable will, in order to live a life that is full of purpose and full of destiny and full of everything that the Lord has desired for us, we have to go through this process of the transformation of the soul. Your history, your experiences, your genealogy, your tragedies and triumphs, your fears, your traumas, your upbringing, and, and your overall life perspectives are the biggest contributors to your soul's programming. So I want you to see your soul like a computer. It is a programmed machine. It is a machine that remembers everything. It remembers sights. It remembers sounds. It remembers sense. I don't know if you've ever experienced that, but you could be driving um, down the highway in your car and you can hear a song 
from back in the day. And then sometimes even in listening to the song, there's a sense of nostalgia. There's an emotion. There's a feeling that comes with it. And you might actually remember a feeling from something that you felt 10 or 15 or 20 years ago. In addition to that, all of a sudden, you might even smell uh, some aromas that you smelled back then during the time that you heard those songs, etc. That's the programming of the soul, all right? So when we look at the soul, every single thing that we have encountered has been stored there. It has a memory bank there. And those are the things that press upon us and what we uh, dispense or manifest in our lives. Your experiences train you to think the way that you do. The things that you've encountered, the things that you have happened upon and the things that have happened upon you have taught you to think and to believe and to feel the way you do. The truth sets you free. Outside of truth, there is no real freedom. Jesus Christ is truth. That means from God's perspective and through the preeminence of Christ, the highest levels of life the highest levels of success, the highest levels of fulfillment are only derived from Christ, from us being in Christ and us walking our lives out according to the purpose of Christ for our lives. Now, you can choose to live beneath that privilege, but you will only further complicate your life, which the Bible says is already full of a whole bunch of trouble, all right? You can literally set yourself up for the highest levels of success, or you can live a mediocre life that you only learn to tolerate, or you can literally be aiding in what is meant to destroy God's ultimate dream for you. And all of this is contingent on the soul. It, you are bound by cycles when you choose to believe a lie in the place of truth. So if you could just take an assessment back to every place in your life where there is a bondage or a struggle that you cannot overcome, every area where there's resistance to the will and the purpose of God, I guarantee you, you will find a lie in the place of the truth. There will be something that you subscribe to. There will be something that you are in covenant with, something that you are in agreement with that is not according to the truth of God, all right? Hypothetically, why are you unequally yoked with an unbeliever? And that doesn't necessarily just mean someone who doesn't believe in God. Let's not make it that generic because the Bible says that even the demons believe God and they tremble. But there are instances where even as two Christians come together, in some ways you can still be yoked together with an unbeliever because they may not believe the way that you believe. They may not believe after how you were believing or what you're going after in God. And so it creates an unjust scale or an unjust balance in that relationship. The question is, why do Christians settle in relationships with people who are only a hindrance to their God-given purpose? Those people can, uh, at times, are never an asset, never a strength, never a support. They're only antagonistic. They're only a voice of dissension. And they usually present some kind of obstacle to what God has called you to do. And it's amazing that when we when we think about it, now I'm talking about this from my pastoral standpoint in the fact that I counsel people, I talk to them about their issues, I deal with married couples on a regular basis. And, and my conclusion really is sometimes people are just flat out with the wrong person. They are literally with people 
that are not a part of God's design for the fulfillment of their purpose. Now, I'm not just advocating get up and get a divorce. You got to you got to work through that. You got to fight through that. You got to process through that. You got to counsel through that. You got to pray through that. You have to find some semblance of a common denominator of God's intention and purpose. And you have to find that place, get to it. And then you have to build from that uh, from that particular place. But when I'm dealing with singles who aren't married yet, there's a whole list of things that I'm telling them that they need to look out for. It doesn't make sense to think that you can connect with someone that you're already unequally yoked with and that somehow the marriage covenant is going to change them and transform them and suddenly make them this powerful, prolific man of God for your purpose or make them some anointed, powerful woman of God for your purpose. Chances are excellent. And and this is by design. The person that you marry may very well be that person for decades. Right. So when you are sitting down at that marriage table and you're making that negotiation and you're considering whether or not this is the person that you need to make that commitment to, you have to consider what if they're never any different If they're never any different. If they never make any changes, is this my purpose? Is this the partner that I'm supposed to share 50 percent of my life's breath with as I pursue the things of God? And so. Far too often, my experience from a pastoral counseling standpoint is that people don't listen for truth in those situations. They don't listen for the voice of God. They listen to the voice of a damaged soul. They hear things like, I'm getting older. They hear things like, I'm lonely and I don't want to die alone. They're, they hear things like, I just need to be loved and it doesn't matter who loves me. Or worse, I just need some attention. So anybody that comes by with an ounce of attention is enough to cause them to to connect. And here's here's the the tragedy, because sometimes it's well-intentioned, meaningful people that are in a deep pursuit of God that are derailed because they have never addressed the issues in their soul. So the first person, or maybe the second or third, depending on where they are, that comes by is enough like a magnet to pull them many times out of the trajectory of God's purpose for their life just so that they can soothe the turbulence in the soul. Your reality and God's truth are not the same. Say that to somebody. Say your reality and God's truth are not the same. You have to exchange your reality, which is your relative personal truth, for God's eternal truth. The scripture says that as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. So what you choose to think sets the path for the manifestation of all your life entails. Think about how powerful that statement is, that I can will myself into anything. I can think myself into anything, and it doesn't have to be the will of the Almighty God. I can choose to follow a path that is not going to bring me to God's purpose and intention. And everything that I set in motion when I begin to go after it, is literally going to propel me further and deeper into the thing that I've set out to do. I don't know. I'm trying to help somebody. People typically pursue, when they have a damaged soul, what makes them feel good more than what actually is good. Because when you're dealing with the traumas of the soul, most people, uh, they try to find a way to compensate for those traumas and the things that they've experienced. If you've been hurt, if you've been disappointed, if you've been uh, rejected, if you've been abandoned, you're trying to compensate for those experiences and anything that makes you feel good is enough. Sometimes you'll reward yourself with things that you know 
are against the will and purpose of God simply because you think that it is your human right to feel good. Well, let me tell you this. When you name the name of Christ, it really is a death walk. When you follow him, you're picking up your cross, you're following him, you're denying yourself, you become a bondservant to Christ. If he's actually your Lord, it means he's calling the shots. Guess what? It doesn't mean you're calling the shots and trying to get him to agree with your calling of the shots. And that is a a level of the self-denial that we don't hear preached enough in our churches. That's a level of the cross that we don't hear preached enough. We talk about Jesus being on the cross, but we don't talk about you being on the cross. We talk about the sacrifice of the cross and all that he did and the benefit it is to us, but we completely overlook the scriptures where he said to us that we have a cross. Or Paul in the, in, in the book of Romans, the sixth chapter, talks about how we are dead to ourselves so that we can be resurrected with Christ. You got to hear that. And so it means that in situations where you're choosing a spouse, where's your cross? When you're choosing your pursuits, what you drink. Where's your cross? Drink in reference to the Matthew 6 scripture about not worrying about what we eat, drink, or clothed with. I ain't talking about drinking, drinking. When you talk about what you go after in your life, the question is, where is your cross? All right? So people pursue what makes them feel good more than what is good. And when you are in that predicament, it reveals a bondage to the soul that needs to be broken. All right. So let's talk about what this healing process really looks like, this deliverance process, this thing that I'm saying that we all need to uh, embrace and that we need to go through. There are multiple layers to the need for deliverance. In short, number one, the Bible shows us that there literally are disembodied spirits or demons that can enter into a human being. All right. A person who is possessed by the devil is one who is under the complete control of demons, body, soul, and spirit. Demon possession is real. It still happens today. It is not an antiquated biblical uh, malady. It is something that we have seen, that we have encountered, that we have confronted, demons that we have cast out in the name of the Lord to see people set free. Demons inhabit people, all right? Now, a possession takes place when that demon is in control of an individual body, soul, and spirit, all right? So that makes it impossible for a true Christian to be possessed by a demon because uh, the Holy Spirit lives in your spirit. The Lord Jesus Christ has entered into your being. Your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost. It, It is impossible for both the Holy Spirit and the devil to live inside of you and be in control of you, all right? There's no match. There's no wrestling match, all right? So either you have the Holy Spirit and you're a child of God, you're truly born again, or you are someone that is void of that life-giving presence and and abiding and infilling presence of the Holy Spirit, and you are susceptible to demonic uh, infiltration or, or entry, all right? The next layer is when demons inhabit a person's body, as in the case of certain infirmities. So there are times when literal infirmities in the body are caused by the presence of demons. So it's not just an issue of that person being healed of the infirmity or the malady, but sometimes it's an issue of deliverance. That demon has to be cast out so that the body can be healed, okay? Or sometimes those demons are inside the soul. Now, again, they cannot live in the spirit of a born-again believer because that's where the Holy Spirit dwells. But those demons can live in the soul, all right? Uh, But it's without the full possession of the entire being of the Christian. 
true Christians can be demonized in that way. All right. The next layer of deliverance is demonic influence where the demons are not inside any part of your being, but as conduits of Satan's domain as the prince and the power of the air, they use frequencies and spiritual currents to control, influence or persuade you through thoughts and, and try to cause your behaviors to adapt to their agenda and their assignments. And so when we talk about how principalities rule, that's how principalities in a geographic territory uh, rule. That's how they govern those territories. They convince people in a certain area to think and to believe in a certain way. And then very often they will pervert the governmental seats of authority or the governmental officials to legislate whatever those thoughts are, particularly thoughts that are against the truth and the righteousness of the Almighty. God, all right? It begins with an atmosphere. They create atmospheres. Demons create atmospheres. An atmosphere is a response to a spiritual influence, all right? Atmosphere over a prolonged period of time creates a climate. A climate that is sustained creates strongholds, which are places of fortified thinking and thoughts. And then strongholds over a certain region creates culture, which then is the modified behavior and the trends and all of those things that go along with what you believe, which was created by that uh, climate and that atmosphere, all right? Expelling a demon is the easiest part of this process when demonic infestation has actually occurred. The arduous task is restoring the soul once the spiritual bondage and the binder are removed. Now, I'm not just talking about uh, Christians that are being told that they're demonized and they're going to services uh, under the guise of deliverance ministry and they're all kind of like yelling and screaming at the altar and, and supposedly at that moment, everybody has demons and all of the demons are leaving. I'm not talking about that. I think in some cases, sometimes that's just emotionally cathartic uh, to be there yelling, screaming. It's almost like scream therapy or shock therapy uh, for some people. But there are instances where there are very real demonic manifestations where the person is no longer consciously in control of their body or their thoughts or the things that they say or the things that they do. And the demon uh, spirit will take complete control and possession of their being and talk uh, through them and act through them where little uh, 80 and 90 pound uh, children or women or, or people need to be held down by six and seven grown men because of the strength that is being exerted through them. Those are demonic manifestations. That is what demonic infiltration actually looks like when it is present in somebody's life. So when we can deal with the demonic world and cast those demons out as as tedious as some of those wrestling matches in the spirit are, the reality is that's the easiest part. What happens after those demons are gone? Well, we know the Bible says that the demon is going to go uh, search dry places and try to find uh, uh, an expanded group of demons. They're going to go try to find spirits seven times, uh, seven demons more powerful than themselves, and they're going to come back to that house. Somebody say amen. It's going to happen. It's a part of the backlash. It's a part of the retaliation, and that house will be swept clean, but the house has to be guarded, and it has to be filled. So how do we do that? That's the process that I'm talking about. Getting the devil out is easy. When you have exousia, when you have dunamis, when you have authority, when you're an authorized agent of Christ, they will go. But you have to be able to bring that person through the transformation of the soul so that when those demons come back, because come back, they will, that demon and those demons cannot find an entry point into the life of that person. That's where we teach. That's where we train. That's where we deal with the restoration of the soul, where we have 
to deal with the fact that deliverance is procedural and it requires deliberate intention and a process. Now, you got to realize that when we approach the issue of deliverance, we have to really want to be set free. It cannot be, I just want relief from the consequences of having demonic activity in my life. You got to really want to turn around. You got to really want things to be different because if you don't, you can potentially create a more disastrous situation. So the first process in dealing with deliverance is acknowledgement. You have to be truthful and you got to admit that there is an ensnarement. There's a place of repeated failure. There's a place of resistance to truth. There's a place where your earthly and fleshly pursuits are superimposed over the word, the truth, the character, and the glory of God. All right. The second step is identifying the entry point of the bondage. Most destructive patterns and cycles that bring bondage are the result of an undesirable experience in your life. Your soul searches for ways to reward itself, to appear the perceived or actual trauma because the truth factor is often a missing element in these pursuits you wind up repeating the same cycles and gravitating to what you despise it's because of the inner programming that has never been changed all right how many non-purposeful bad relationships do you have to have in your life as many as it takes to realize the solution is not a new person it's a new mind and a delivered and restored soul Think about it like this. Whatever thought process you use, whatever paradigm or system that you use to connect with your first or second or third or fourth or fifth failure in a relationship without significant transformation to your soul, you're still using that same thought process to connect to the very next one. So you repeat failure after failure, heartbreak after heartbreak until you grow enough into a transformed and renewed belief system. All right. Sometimes the best teacher is pain. Unfortunately, most people ought to learn the hardest lessons life can teach them instead of simply acquiescing to the truth of what will make and keep them free. The third step is getting God's truth in the matter and applying that truth. Well, how do I know if I'm in a relationship with the right person? The Bible says, how can two walk together unless they be agreed? Amos 3 and 3. If you can't even agree on which God you will worship or where you're going to worship him at, or what your role and assignment in the kingdom is, why do you need any further proof or any other proof that you're interested in the wrong person? Or are you willing to confront the feelings of your insecurity and the voids that you haven't been willing to allow God to fill? Why do people settle for a lack of Christ-centered love in their lives and allow people to take their lives through all kinds of fires and hells without any recourse? How many people had they paraded in your face to prove to you how insignificant you are to them. Yet there you are still holding on like a puppet, hoping and wishing that the abuser is going to do something different. Everything in your experience with them has proven that there's no change. Yet because of your unresolved abandonment and rejection issues, you are a glutton for emotional punishment and mental distress because even if you only get 25% of the abuser's attention, it's better than 0% of no one's attention. These are all issues of the soul that if your life is to get on track, they need to be healed. They need to be resolved. They need to be restored. The lamp of the body is the eye. Your system for rationale, for spiritual perception, for insight, for revelation is literally the lamp of your body. If your ability to rightly discern is good, your entire body is full of light. It's full of revelation. It's full of instruction. It's full of wisdom. But if your eye, your ability to see 
your ability to discern, your ability to perceive, if your eye is bad, your whole body, your whole life, your whole system is full of darkness. So our scripture, Matthew 6, 22 says, the lamp of the body is the eye. That means your ability to discern, your ability to see, your ability to rationalize. If your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. There are some well-meaning Christians who their body of life is full of darkness because they refuse to discern and to see according to truth. They only allow the emanation of the soul to guide them, to lead them, to influence them not recognizing that they have never subjected their soul to the process of God's healing and deliverance. Just because you think it doesn't mean it's good. Just because it's your opinion and your idea doesn't make it right. We have to balance our pursuits. We have to balance our appetites. We have to balance what we eat, what we drink, what we wear with God's truth and the pursuit of his kingdom first and foremost. You can't be a prophet of God and make bad decisions in your life and not think that it's going to skew your ability to receive and interpret and disseminate revelation. You can't be an apostle. You can't be a leader. You can't be an elder. You can't be someone given charge over the flocks of God or the house of God or an agent in the kingdom of God and think that your decision-making faculties, your eye, doesn't influence how you lead and how you serve because it absolutely does. I cringe when I look at people who should be full of the light and the life of God making life-altering decisions that are based on the soul or worse, the kingdom of darkness. So this is a clarion call. This is a call for us to begin the process of the transformation of the soul. Yeah, you've been hurt. Yeah, you've been damaged. Yes, things have happened. Yes, you've struggled. Yes, there's been pain. But you are not allowed to allow the voice of those experiences to govern and to control your life. You cannot have communion or communication with a dead season because that's the sin of necromancy. You have to push into God. You have to press into his kingdom. You have to seek his kingdom and his righteousness first and foremost. I'm talking to the believers and I cannot reiterate this enough. More than your social platforms agenda, more than your Democratic or your Republican Party's agenda, more than your affiliations agenda, you have to pursue the kingdom of God and his righteousness first and foremost. Everything else falls into line after that. Father, I pray that as we begin this journey with the transformation of the soul, that your word like a sword will go into every heart, will go into every soul and would reveal and expose to us every area where we need healing, where we need deliverance. And I pray, Father, for the application of faith so that we can attain to the thing that we need and the thing that we so desperately require of you. Take the blinders off and let the voices that we have to filter out, let them be filtered out so that we can hear the voice of the Holy Spirit with clarity according to your truth. Break off every apparatus of the enemy that comes to ensnare us because of what he knows to be the hangup of the souls. The emotional hot buttons, the mental hot buttons, Father, let them all subside so that we can see and hear according to your truth. I thank you. I praise you. And we call it done in Jesus name. Amen and amen.